This passage that we're looking at this weekend, actually in the early church, was kind of scandalous. And in fact, if you look at this passage, probably in your Bible, it says very similar to what it says in mine. The earliest and most reliable manuscripts and in the other ancient witnesses do not have this. So why did they put that in there? Well, if you go back and you got early manuscripts, hundreds of them, maybe even thousands of them, some of the earliest ones, and those tend to be, if you will, the ones that we put more reliability on, didn't have this section. Now, actually, some of them had a blank spot right here where this text was, but others didn't have these verses at all. But one of the problems of excluding it was as early on in the church, in the second century, early church fathers and, and teachers were talking about this text. So it's hard to imagine that it probably wasn't part of the scriptures. Um, and that's why uh, most versions have them in there. And I fully support it. Maybe one of the reasons why that it was excluded was because of this issue or this um, scandalous kind of um, belief. What is it scandalous about? Well, grace. Uh, there's a tendency sometimes for some to look at a passage like this and say, yeah, Jesus is way too soft on sin. I mean, he doesn't deal with it. She's caught in adultery, and he just seems to send her on down the way. And so uh, in our culture, even today, people are oftentimes concerned about or just um, this issue of being soft on sin. And so they, they think a passage like this might be something that was added later. I don't think that it was. I think actually it is scandalous in the sense that it gives us a lavish, lavish view of grace. Some are uncomfortable with that. They don't understand it. They think grace is indulging to people. They think grace is soft on sin. I think as we look at this passage, we'll find out that maybe from my conviction, grace is the only one that addresses sin. Uh, it, it addresses it because it addresses it in a biblical way. A bunch of religious leaders bring a woman and they thrust her in a public setting, it says, before everyone. And they accuse her of being an adulteress. We often wonder, I wonder why her? How did they know? Where is the guy? But even in that leads us kind of to our first point. When it comes to your sin, much like this woman, you stand alone. At first, we're kind of angry that the guy is let off and they come. But the reality is there is a lesson here. And it is a lesson. And Jesus doesn't stop the whole thing and say, hey, I'm not addressing any of this until we get the guy in here. And, and maybe it's because, like this woman, every one of us, when it comes to our own sin, we stand alone. We don't have anyone else to blame. We don't have another man. She might have said, hey, wait a minute. What about this other guy? He's the one that got me in this. It was his idea. All of that could have been true. But Jesus dealt with her. He, he dealt with her sin. And he talked with her. And in that sense, I think that's a great lesson for us. Even though the context seems wrong and the context is harsh, the fact is, uh, when you and I stand before God, we're not going to be able to say, well, Lord, it was my wife or it was my husband or it was my boss or it was my kids or it was my parents. All of those things, God is going to say, no, it was you. You stand here 
by yourself with no one else here to protect you, no one else here to blame on. And in that sense, this passage kind of gives us a, 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 an important perspective is that uh, we are going to be like her. We may feel it unjust at some point, but the fact is we all stand before God alone, each one of us. And secondly, as I look at this passage, I realize that when it comes to your sin or my sin, it's a matter ultimately not between me and a score of people. It's me and Jesus. I love the setting. You know the story. These guys come in and Jesus tells them, hey, if you guys are without sin, man, pick up a stone. It's time to stone her. One by one, it says, actually, interestingly enough, that the elderly leave first. You wonder why? Well, maybe they're more honest. Maybe they've had more time to live life in sin. Uh, not sure. There's all kinds of speculation. But at the end of the day, the only people that are standing there is Jesus and this woman. When it comes to your sin and when it comes to my sin, no one else is going to stand there. And it's going to be the primary issue. The only issue is going to be between me and Christ. And that is going to be very similar to what David said. There's a passage in Psalm 53 where David, he had sinned against Bathsheba and it was a horrific thing and caused her to live in an adulterous relationship and it caused Uriah uh, to ultimately die. And yet David says in Psalm 51.3, against you and you only, Lord, have I sinned. I've often struggled with that passage. It's like, God, David sinned against a lot of people. It wasn't just you. It was Uriah. It was Bathsheba. It was, I mean, uh, let's talk about the whole country that he, that he kind of uh, sinned against. Is David dismissing those? No, not at all. But I think much like this woman, he brings it down to the fact that is at the core, all sin finds its origin in my, what? my rebellion against God. My rejection of God, my dismissing of God. And there's all kinds of issues that come up, but the urgent matter between this woman and Christ is her sin. And that's in some unique ways what Jesus uniquely did is he, he got rid of them. But look how he got rid of them. They came with the full expectation of having a, a trial jury, if you will, open public and condemning this woman. Jesus looks around at them. We often wonder what he writes in the sand. People have speculated to no end. Maybe he started writing names of people that they'd had affairs with. Maybe he started writing names of things or people that gave them an indication that he knew something about their life. It was enough in the question that he who is without sin casts the first stone and what he wrote in the sand. It was enough to cause every one of them to walk away. Why? Well, Friends, they walked away because they were guilty. They walked away because they came to, if you will, hang her, have an inquisition of her, and Christ ended up having an inquisition of them. 
Why? Because when it comes to your sin and my sin, what matters is God, not the crowd. And every one of those individuals came to grips with the fact that Jesus knew something about them enough to silence them. Enough to cause them to say, I'm out of here. I have nothing to say when it comes to condemning this woman. Whatever happened in that moment, whatever Jesus wrote on the ground, it was enough that every one of them, one by one, the scripture says, starting with the elderly, they all walked away because Jesus had said enough that they knew he knows me. What's interesting and sad is that they came with a very public sin of this woman and their sin at the, at the beginning of this was private. No one knew about it. And they thought for a moment maybe that Jesus didn't know about it. When they came and found out that actually her sin was public and their sin was public to Christ, that's when you realize that your sin, first and foremost, is always going to be a matter between you and Christ. Why? Because he knows you. He knows everything you and I have done. He knows everything you and I have thought. He knows the motives behind our hearts. And in this moment, when they come to condemn her, they're actually condemned in their own heart. I think in some ways, you know what the saddest part of the story is to me? Is that they all walked away. Now, that was perfect for Jesus, who wanted to ultimately restore this woman. But you know what was really sad? is Christ, I believe, would have restored them. Christ would have come to them and he would have said, hey, I, I, you guys, go and sin no more. If you will come and trust me and pour your heart out to me and ask for forgiveness like this woman is going to do, then I will do for you what I'm going to do for him or for her. But they walked away. One by one, they walked away from grace. Because they had been convinced, that's why they walked, that Christ knew something about them. Christ knows something about you and me. He knows everything we've ever said. He knows everything we've ever done. And his passion, this is the third point of this beautiful story, is his passion is to save us, to not condemn us. That's a gift. The God who has every capability to condemn us is actually the one that wants to pardon us. The God who knows everything about you and everything you've ever stated is actually the God who wants to pardon you, to forgive you, to save you, and to cleanse you. That's the power and, and if you will, of the scandal of this text. Because I think there's a sense of which we want God to be harder on people. She committed adultery. And the reality is, if God were to unveil publicly your sin, you would be and I would be as condemned as this woman. But the God who has the perfect right to condemn us, because he knows everything, is actually the God who wants to forgive us. I know of a situation, it's a, it's a lady who 
it almost you can sense that her desire is to catch people doing things wrong. And and that's really kind of the way she relates to people. She she's always the one who finds the fault, always the one that finds the mistake. I find people around this individual kind of walk on eggshells. I do. They they they, they have these situations where they're they are cautious in what they share. They're um, they hedge, if you will. Why? Because they're they're convinced that if if this person finds one level of weakness in your life, man, she will pounce on it. Imagine if God related to us that way. It'd be frightening. But the God who knows everything about you is the one who comes to this woman and he goes, hey, where's all the judges? Where are the people who are here to condemn you? We're in the courtroom. The only one is here is Jesus and her. And and he says, is there anyone here to condemn you? No. Then he says those beautiful words, neither am I. I have no passion to condemn you. Christ has no compassion to condemn us. He doesn't. Will he discipline us? Sure. Will he correct us? Absolutely. Will he shame us? Pile guilt upon us, bury us in a list of all. No. The very God who knows us best, who has every right to condemn us, is the God who has the deepest passion to forgive us. That leads us to the last point of this story. Christ's death is big enough to cover our sin and transform our hearts. That's the simple power of this story. He comes to her. They've caught her. She's guilty. She's a marriage wrecker, probably her own, maybe another man's. And there's so many things about her life that are tragic. And yet there's two things that Jesus says to her. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Those are really two different things. The first one is grace is big enough to cover any sin you've ever done. The scandalous sin of adultery. The tragic sin of an abortion. The sin of theft. The sin of rampant gossip. The sin of betrayal. Any of those. Jesus would say to you, As he said to this woman, I don't condemn you. And when it comes to your sin, the only one that ultimately matters. It's not that you don't hurt other people, but the only one that ultimately matters is Christ. His death is big enough to cover your sin. But it's also powerful enough to transform you. Go and sin no more. Is it realistic that a person could live sinless? No, I don't think that's the point at all. I don't think Jesus is going to contradict another or, or scores of other passages of Scripture. Uh, the fact is, is Christ is quite aware. He's the one who wrote the Bible. He's quite aware that all of us, this side of heaven, 
are going to struggle with our obedience and we're going to struggle. But he, but, but look at what he, go and sin. In other words, you can live a life without sin. You don't have to sin every day. Your life doesn't have to be marked by sin. There's a power and a grace. In fact, Titus says it best, maybe. Let this grace teach you to say no to ungodliness. Go and sin no more. The power of grace gives you the ability to not sin. The power of grace gives you the ability to resist temptation. The power of grace gives you the the appetite to long for righteousness. The power of grace gives you the longing for holiness. Not idealistic perfectionism holiness. The power of grace gives you the the longing to overcome and look over another person's sin and to bear with them. The power of grace gives you the ability to forgive. The power of grace gives you the capacity to sacrifice. The power of grace gives you the ability to live with a transformed heart. See, the God who had every right to condemn you is actually the God who delights in forgiving you. And when he forgives you, when he transforms you, he challenges you. Hey, go. Sin no more. Choose righteousness. Choose faithfulness in your relationships maybe to this woman, go home and be faithful to your husband and be loyal to your children. Maybe it's break off this relationship that you're trying to destroy this family. Go, stop that. Maybe what God is saying to you is he who knows you best, who has every right to condemn you, chooses not to and actually pursues what the greatest passion of ever to forgive you. He can cover your sin. The grace also transforms your heart. Grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness. Grace teaches us to live with integrity in our relationship. Grace gives us a hunger because grace is the only one that has the capacity to forgive our sins and to transform our behavior. Grace is the only one that takes sin seriously. This text is a scandalous text. Scandalous in what it deals with adultery. Scandalous in the fact that the woman is brought and the man is left probably because he's cronies with the leaders. But it's actually a beautiful story. It's a story of your life and mine. We stand before God alone. But not to hear condemnation, but to hear pardon. But along with that pardon, it's a challenge. Let grace transform you. Let grace received into your life change your appetite. And when it does, you'll find yourself making choices 
that might even shock you. You might find yourself making choices that surprise your family. That's grace. It's the scandalous, powerful story of God's grace in a woman's life and in your life. Well, it's been good to be with you. I wish it was live, but this is the second best. So I hope you again stay safe. I hope you stay warm. And I hope none of you are out driving around trying to find something to do. It's a good weekend to stay home. And we certainly will see you next week. How about if I close this in prayer? Father, thank you for our church, for the scandalous, glorious power of grace. Thank you, God, the one who could have condemned us. You had every right, but you passionately pursued us to pardon us. Thank you for that transformation. God, may it be true in our life today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you all. We'll see you soon.